Hello everyone, happy Easter. Welcome to another coffee chat session of my YouTube channel based on data and science. In today's session, we'll actually discuss about the implementation of AI or machine learning in scientific research. I'm honored to join by Lucas Simon, an esteemed guest from academia, will talk about his experience about how he's implementing AI machine learning or data science in his day-to-day -day academic research work. Uh, welcome, Lucas. Thanks for joining our computer session today. And, Hi, Sam. Thanks yeah. for having me. Uh, so with further ado, I'm going to actually ask Lucas, you know, if you just introduce yourself uh, to my viewers uh, before we dive into the main section of this computer session. Sure. So I'm uh, Lucas Simon, and I'm a group leader of computational biology at the Therapeutic Innovation Center at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And uh, I lead a small group of data scientists with the goal to um, you know, apply state-of-the-art data science to answer questions on the level of molecular data uh, specifically with focus on um, developing early cancer therapeutics. That's very fascinating, you know, and thanks, Lucas, for providing the kind of like a groundbreaking, groundbreaking research work your team has been doing. I'll definitely, that will have a lot of implementation in future, and hopefully it will change the paradigm of artificial intelligence or machine learning in the scientific research world. So with further ado, uh, I'm gonna dive into the main section for today's coffee chat session. So I'm gonna start with the, the first question to you, Lucas, is uh, in your opinion, what's the significance of data in your scientific research? Yeah, I think that um, biology or you know, biomedicine has evolved in the last you know, 20 years or so. Um, just like many other fields have, uh, in, in the way that technology has advanced to a point where it's very easy to collect very large amounts of data in your routine experiments. Specifically, you know, I'm referring to one of my topics of, of interest, which is gene expression. So um, technology has advanced in such a way, you know, with the advent of what's called next generation sequencing, you're able to measure um, all genes in your sample with relative ease. So uh, if you think about the data that it produces, you know, we can think about kind of ballpark numbers is that you have approximately 20,000 genes that are expressed in, in, in any cell. And so if you take, uh, if you profile, a couple of samples, you will end up with a data matrix that captures 20,000 genes across the number of samples that you have. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, a, that's uh, for example, just a, a relatively large matrix that is, at the one hand, it's challenging because it's not easy to, you can't just look at it and know exactly which, you know, which gene is sort of important here. Uh, at the same time, it's super exciting because data analysts can apply sort of more sophisticated analysis methods uh, in order to ask questions uh, or try to answer questions. 
No, that's definitely fascinating to know about that because as you mentioned about the, you know, the collecting the gene expression data, like we know that after the, you know, advent of um, uh, Illumina and like, you know, how quickly, you know, we can literally produce, you know, thousands of millions of gene expression data. And uh, we all know that, you know, like it's kind of difficult to learn a pattern from a gene data. So that's why we kind of put it in that unsupervised learning category. But, you know, it's, it's fascinating to know that and every day, you know, your, your research is evolved around the gene expression data. Just try to understand the pattern, you know, and that's, uh, I believe it's one of the, I guess, the big segue to understand that how we can, uh, you know, manipulate or process the gene data, maybe that will uh, give us some sort of a hidden meaning of what's going on. So yeah, th thanks for, you know, like uh, providing that information of what kind of, how you're actually, you know, using data for your scientific research. You know, we were talking about millions of records, you know, processed, you know, like a, a few, um, you know, every day. So, so, so yeah, so that's kind of literally take me to kind of like the next question, because that's also related to like a data, because as you mentioned that, you know, your team is being very involved in the processing the gene data and, uh, you know, in a biological, um, uh, using like different biological context and applying, you know, AI and machine learning or data analysis work. So, so as, as a data scientist, uh, I always try to, you know, always uh, feel like that um, most of the time we spend more time in processing the data rather than building a model based on that, right? So most of the time we uh, perform data wrangling or some sort of data cleaning to understand that uh, we have a clean or tidy data set that can be fit into a model. So based on your like, you know, daily, you know, experience or some day-to-day -day work. So how challenging is to like collect the data, like source the data, manage the data, and also transform it into a kind of a relevant form so that you can build a model or at least we can get, uh, you know, uh, understand some, some, some sort of underlying pattern from the data, uh, especially in terms of gene expression data or any other molecular biology related data. Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, question, and um, and I have sort of uh, my own kind of personal definition up between two subfields of computational biology or bioinformatics, and you know I don't know if everybody will agree, but for my own, I I I, I mark a certain boundary uh, in the analysis. So what I call bioinformatics or computational biology, you know, sometimes people use these two terms like interchangeably, but I make my own kind of definition. And I say bioinformatics is everything that happens before you get your uh, sort of data matrix. So for example, if you're talking about gene expression, that would be a gene expression matrix. So what algorithm, what steps are involved in order to create that matrix? And then computational biology is what happens downstream. So in computational biology, um, you take that data matrix and you do sort of analysis, uh, maybe you know, PCA or some other models mm -hmm. in order to gain insight from that matrix. That's all of sort of my own personal definition where I can put a clear boundary uh, between these two, two topics. Yeah. And I think, um, there, so it really depends on sort of the research focus that, that people have in these pro, the standard processing pipelines. So ways to get from your raw data, which is actually sort of reads, um, how to get to account metrics, there are established pipelines. And some research groups, they focus on how to improve the pipeline and maybe you know, how to gain more uh, insight from different aspects of this pipeline. But 
a lot of researchers just kind of live and take accept the, the, the standard or the state of the art pipeline. They just run that and then they focus their research on the downstream part, how to maybe model the count metrics and so on. So, um, you know, I think there are challenges in, in both ways. So uh, maybe let's talk about a little bit, you know, computational uh, sort of, um, I would say hardware challenges. The data before it, during the bioinformatic step is very large. So you're talking about, you know, single read in any given sample, you have approximately 50 million reads. Um, then for each read, you also sort of measure some sort of quality scores and so on. So just for a single sample, right, um, you would have a text matrix or a data file that would have uh, you know, approximately 200 uh, million rows. So it can be a very large file. And now that's just a single sample. Let's say you have a study where you're com comparing a healthy and maybe you know, diseased patients, then that can be hundreds of samples. And so now you're talking about you know, gigabytes to terabytes of data. And of course, you know, depending on what, what the project is, this can be very big. So during that step, that bioinformatics step of saving the raw data, processing the raw data, getting it to a data matrix analysis kind of format, um, there's a lot of challenge, just very sort of IT related challenges, right? such as storage, such as you know, running algorithms uh, with, in, in, in a relatively fast time to process the data and so on. So there are these, I, th I would call them kind of you know, hardware challenges that are things that need to be considered that maybe at the computational biology perspective, so downstream analysis, you don't really have to think about that much. Um, but I think also there's a lot of opportunity for uh, discovery when you think about, okay, this is the state of the art algorithm. We all kind of know that you can do these following steps to quantify gene expression. Is there an opportunity to learn something more, learn something new about it? And for example, in, in our team, we have uh, also taken the standard analysis. So just counting reads and, and trying to quantify gene expression. And we thought, okay, can we be a little bit you know, smarter about it? And can we quantify different parts of gene expression in different ways? So we developed a, you know, an algorithm that allowed us to quantify um, specific aspects of gene regulation in a sort of non-traditional way. Um, and so now looking back at the big picture, um, I think one of the questions you ask, okay, where can you use you know, uh, AI in this whole long step? I do think that um, there, there's this, uh, this concept of feature engineering, right? Or mm -hmm. trying to kind of um, take the raw data. The feature from the raw data, yeah. Right, have a, maybe a more creative or innovative way to uh, summarize your raw data. Mm -hmm. And that maybe allows you to um, come up with new discoveries as well. So I think there's a whole spectrum of, of analysis and there's also a whole spectrum of skills that you know, people have to have in order to kind of work along this, this, this pipeline. Um, but I would say that as you go further away from the raw data, you're probably uh, dealing with less data and less sort of maybe hardware um, challenges. 
and more towards the modeling. So you know, people that really like modeling, I think they sometimes I feel like they they prefer to work on a nice count metrics. And they don't really care how the count metrics came about, but you know, it's going to be nice to be handled. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that that's really true because in most of the cases, you know, people just uh, think about an outcome of the model rather than how much time it's been spent to, you know, develop the data to make it compatible with the model. So we usually don't tend, we less tend to focus on, you know, developing the data structure. So uh, just out of curiosity, so in your you know, academic research, do you usually partner with uh, in a group of data engineers, IT team who can help you out in processing the data and also building the metrics that you can you know, use for your model building exercise? Or usually your team are kind of responsible to perform the data processing step? Yeah, I think uh, the, maybe there's not a single rule, but I think the most common uh, approach is that each let's say computational lab or computational group, they will have maybe one person who's going to be more familiar with, um, you know, kind of IT or, or admin and, and kind of, let's say they're very comfortable living in like a high performance computing environment, mm -hmm. and know how to you know, install programs and run programs and submit it to a queue and so on. Um, but of course, every department um, generally provides the hardware so you can kind of have access to a high performance computing system and they will provide also some uh, IT support. But generally, you know, things such as running the pipeline, uh, maybe installing the algorithm and so on, that's something that's usually handled within, within the team. The IT support is sort of more higher level. You know, if, if, if you were to lose some storage, maybe they can try to recover it or they can you know, make sure that, that all the computers are running uh, the way they should be. No, that's good. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks uh, Lucas, for providing this additional information because it's kind of like a very interesting uh, segue, I mean, a very interesting setup that you have where you do already have your data engineers or somebody with an IT expertise within your lab. So you don't actually have to like, you know, spend an additional time to partner with maybe third party or somebody else. So it's, I feel like it's more of like a cohesive approach to have all the kind of experts within your lab. So you, you know, you won't spend a lot of time to like processing the data or getting the data from outsource, you know, outsource areas. So, so yeah, that's that's really great to know. I'm pretty sure uh, some of my viewers in the in the industry area they would actually uh, kind of relate this to the you know this uh, experience because in the industry area we do also have a kind of a team, you know, like a data engineer or data analyst or data scientist. But most of the cases they tend to like work very cohesively. I mean, they, you know, their work has been <clears throat> kind of like overlapped with each other whenever they run any project or, you know, whenever they're involved in processing any data uh, through a pipeline. And so I could literally relate to that with uh, what you just, you know, described about your data processing pipeline um, involving, you know, data engineers or somebody from, you know, IT department. So thanks, Lucas, for that. So now that's kind of take me to kind of like the last question for this coffee chat session. And that's more of, this question is more of like a, you know, you know futuristic, because uh, as you mentioned that, you know, like we, when we uh, process the data, we formulate into matrix format. And then after that, maybe that feature engineering 
thing come up. And um, in, in recent days, we have seen that uh, the advent of like uh, the deep learning, that how deep learning is being very uh, useful in terms of taking the paradigm of AI to the next level, and also it helping uh, you know, the data scientists or AI developers to extract feature automatically, because that's kind of like one of the limitation of machine learning, where you basically have to involve uh, to extract the feature, you have to, you know, compute that, you have to code that. But in deep learning, it usually kind of like uh, derive the feature engineering part automatically by, you know, using the neural network. So having said that, you know, like uh, given this kind of technology advancement in the deep learning and machine learning area. So what do you think, you know, like how would your scientific research or the kind of, you know, work you do would get benefited from the, you know, advancement in the deep learning space? Do you think, you know, like your team will be more, um, you know, uh, go towards you know deep learning space in order to build the model, or do you think it will be more kind of uh, still related to just a machine learning or the basic level of machine learning technology that your team would use in future as well? Yeah, that's a interesting question, and, and I think you're absolutely right that in, in in recent years we've seen more applications of deep learning in biology or you know biomedicine than than before. And actually, just to give a little bit more context, I, I, I kind of want to maybe uh, introduce, I think, two major um, kind of uh, uh, changes or steps that have, I think, really led to the application of deep learning in, in, our, in our current uh, research. Mm -hmm. So one is, I think I mentioned it kind of before, is that in a single experiment, you can measure you know, thousands, ten thousands of, of genes. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about you know, application of deep learning as sort of as a rule of thumb, you know, is that oh you want to have around 10,000 data points or so yeah. in yeah. order to apply your model. So um, now it really depends on how what is the question that you're asking and what are you using as data points. Um, and so let's think about of a typical gene expression matrix, it will have maybe on you know, the genes as rows. So you have like 20,000 rows, and then maybe you have the number of data points as columns. And so um, there was a, a specific advancement in the technology, which is called single cell RNA sequencing analysis, which allowed us to profile gene expression, not just across usually previously, it was called bulk RNA sequencing. So there you look at like uh, you know, thousands of cells and you just kind of average the gene expression across those cells. But now we have the ability to actually sequence a single cell mm -hmm. and measure the expression levels in a single cell. And this technology has nicely matured in such a way that in a regular experiment, you can profile between 10,000 to maybe a million cells. And now, um, I just want to kind of, again, put that back into context where you think about the data matrix. Now you have 20,000 genes and now you have 1 million columns. So that's actually a huge matrix. And it really changed the whole realm of how we do analysis. Yeah. Previously, in bulk RNA sequencing data, let's say you'd have 100 samples. And even 100 samples is already kind of, you know, first of all, a lot of work to profile experimentally. And it's also... Uh, kind of expensive. Not manual intervention, but, yeah. Right. But you're in a situation where, you know, you have only 100 columns and 20,000 rows. Mm -hmm. And so you can't really do much deep learning across 100 
columns, right? So when previously what people would do when they apply deep learning to this analysis, they would ask questions across roles. So they kind of ask, for example, um, what is the sequence, the genomic sequence in front of this class of genes versus another class of genes? And, you know, neural networks are actually kind of been used in that aspect uh, a lot in the beginning for something called motif analysis. So you could ask questions about different genes with deep learning, but you couldn't really ask questions about different samples. So you couldn't really do the analysis across the samples. But with the advent of single cell RNA sequencing data, now you have huge matrices or very wide matrices, right? Where you have a lot of columns. So this is kind of the first time in molecular biology that you have more data points, more samples than genes. And when you're thinking about it from an analysis perspective, again, you're not in that uh, small and large P problem anymore. And you can kind of use deep learning methods sort of you know, out of the box on this type of data. And uh, so, you know, I was involved in projects and we have kind of you know, made some publications on the topic of applying uh, deep learning algorithms to specifically single cell RNA sequencing data sets. And I think, you know, all of us kind of data enthusiasts are really excited to get our hands on single cell RNA sequencing data because now we can actually try to you know, apply complicated machine learning, deep learning models that previously we just didn't have the power to, or if we applied them, we could only ask questions about genes and not really across samples. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. You know, it's really like kind of, uh... Uh, coming to the like main point here that how this you know advent of deep learning technology supported by you know the data the gene expression data uh, literally change the kind of the whole uh, implementation of AI machine learning research because you know I guess a few decades back it was not possible because we first of all we don't have an easy access to a technology that can maybe generate the data very fast and rapidly and also we don't have a you know tool or some sort of a, you know technology similar to deep learning or neural network that can literally just you know take the data points and you know try to profiling the gene expression accordingly. And just one quote, just follow-up question. When you're talking about this profiling gene expression, you know, like just for my uh, viewers who are not in that uh, scientific research field, is that profiling is more of like a prediction of the gene patterns in the sense, you know, in the data science uh, sense, or do you think profiling is something else other than just prediction of the gene pattern? Uh, so yeah, right. When I say profiling, that's actually just a measurement of, of genes. So that's coming from the... Uh, technology that's coming sort of from the machine it's just measuring you know what's the expression of this gene in that cell and 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 uh, that's what i mean with profiling what you do with it whatever the application is of that you know what, what you want to kind of uh, extract from that uh, data that's a different question and so just to give an example in in one of our previous projects we implemented a uh, autoencoder. An autoencoder is a, you know, a neural network no, that tries to kind of learn itself, right? Mm -hmm. But it has an important constraint that in, in the hidden layer, you're using a lot lower dimensionality than your input data. Yeah. And so what it does, it, it forces the network to learn a very efficient compression of the data. Mm -hmm. And so we apply this to single cell RNA sequencing data. Mm -hmm. And then we try to look at, okay, what 
is the compression that we actually learned from the data. We were really curious, okay, what did the network learn? And uh, what it learned is sort of the data manifold of the data. So it kind of learns uh, different clusters of cells. So for example, if you had a sample that consisted of different cell types, mm -hmm. you would actually identify different cell types in that hidden space. And um, you know, so that was you know one of the first applications of deep learning to sort of single cell RNA sequencing data, mm -hmm. and it showed really nicely that you know the algorithm is just optimizing a loss function, right? But uh, the information and the insight that you gain is uh, really biological, right? Because the clusters represented different cell types. So when we first saw the first time we looked into that hidden layer and we saw that these cells were colored by different you know, cell types and they were kind of uh, mapping to different locations we were very excited because it showed that you know our algorithm was able to uh, extract real biology that's great to know and also lucas as you mentioned that you actually have a research paper associated with that uh, just for my you know viewers uh, reference so will you be able to like share the research paper link with us so i can actually mention that in the video caption Sure, I will, I will send you the link to, to those papers, uh, no problem. Thank you, yeah. So viewers, you know, like, please uh, check out the, the you know, video caption where I would share Lucas' uh, research paper link. Hopefully you will get more information out of that. And as you, like, just uh, wrap it up, you know, uh, as you mentioned that, you know, like, the, how deep learning is being very crucial and very, very implementational in, in your scientific research. And if I think about some other aspect of deep learning, we saw that how DeepMind is basically, you know, using deep learning to, like, do a, you know, protein discovery. Pro and I, I feel like, you know, like, your research, it's not a similar to that, but it's we are actually going towards the same direction where we're using a technology to understand the hidden pattern of molecular biology or is it protein structure or you know trying to profiling gene expression. So I feel like you know as a scientific community, I guess we are all uh, going towards that direction where we can you know easily benefit it from you know from the advancement of deep learning. And it's it's not possible without uh, the kind of tools we have. Um, I don't know what kind of tools you use. I just wanted to, be out of curiosity, uh, either your team is heavily involved uh, in building the deep learning model using PyTorch or TensorFlow, or do you use, just use uh, regular R and Python programming language to develop your own model from a statistical standpoint? Um, yeah, I would say that really depends on personal preference. Some people, uh, they, they prefer Python, others, they use, use R. Um, they use maybe different, you know, what we commonly use is Keras, so it's a TensorFlow-based, um, uh, you know, originally Python implementation, but there's also like a R uh, wrapper around it. Um, so um, that's, you know, the, our go-to, let's say, language for building neural nets. Um, but there, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's more to the analysis than just building the neural net, right? You also want to you know, visualize the data and you know, analyze sort of the outputs and so on. So I think there it's, it's kind of free to personal preference what people use, at least in our group. And so it's a healthy mix, I would say, between R and, and Python enthusiasts. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, you know, and again, for my viewers, it's not like we should be like a pog town with one technology. I mean, everybody has like, you know, should have preference to use their own technology as long as our main goal would be like, you know, consistent and we 
I mean, we can use any sort of toolkits. I mean, there are a lot of different programming languages that are coming up. So many Python libraries we could use to build any sort of deep learning models. But it, it just as long as, uh, you know, as uh, Lucas mentioned, as long as we keep our data matrix uh, consistent, you know, it would be compatible with our model. Then you know, you can either use Keras or PyTorch or even TensorFlow. Uh, it won't make a significant impact to your model performance if, if based on your technology or you know language preference. So, so I think that's all that's bring me to an end of this coffee chat session. Thanks, Lucas, and thanks for providing a lot of information about your academic research. It's a very informative and engaging discussion. I do appreciate your time and consideration for this. And for my viewers, uh, please uh, take a look at the video caption. I'll share with Lucas' uh, research paper over there. And if you do have any follow-up question, please feel free to share in the comment section. And also, uh, if you would like to uh, follow Lucas, he's available. Uh, he's actually uh, he has an account on LinkedIn. So I would also share his LinkedIn account over there. If you're interested to know more about his academic research, please feel free to get in touch with him on LinkedIn. Okay, that's all for now. Happy Easter again to all of you, and I'll see you in the next coffee chat session. Till then, goodbye. Thanks, Lucas. Thanks, Sam. Bye bye.